Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You know, it's again, so often in all these historical books that we read, amateurism was a joke from the beginning. Welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I have discovered a new Olympic sport. Which is? Pandemic grocery shopping. Oh, that's tough. I mean, it's dodging, it's weaving, it's learning the pattern of the store. It's hard. I mean, I never liked grocery shopping. I'm not one of those, ooh, let's see what's on sale this week. I'm just like, get in, have my list, and get out. And man, I got too close to somebody when I was picking up some strawberries, and I had to use all my karate moves that Tom Scott taught me. Oh, it was... so this would be full contact. <laughs> it was rough. Thankfully, I have enough groceries now for a couple weeks. I won't be going out again anytime soon. Oh, well, I feel you. Hopefully next time you'll get on the metal stand. I know, and t- and uh, Ted Liggety will be there with my Oreos. That's right. <laughs> there were no Oreos today. <laughs> <laughs> the cookie aisle was very bare. I must have missed the Nabisco delivery. Wow, it's <laughs> like if the Ted Liggety cardboard stand was there, they would have taken the cardboard Oreo out of his hand. They might have. I mean, people were getting crazy. It's just, if it was toilet paper, they absolutely would have. Hopefully. Ted Ligeti won't become one of those Charmin bears that you see on the, t- on the TV. <laughs> Don't you go insulting my Ted Ligeti. He's my friend. He's going to throw Oreos at me. <laughs> That's right, with the catapult. Exactly. You know what else we can catapult to you? I'm afraid to ask. Good book. Absolutely. It's book club week here on Olympic Fever. We have book club Claire back on to lead us in our discussion of Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany by Andrew Marinus. Take a listen. Claire, welcome back. We are excited to be talking about Andrew Marinus's book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. What can you tell us? I can tell you that's a long title again. <laughs> they, it's, it's almost like doing verbal exercises with your lips. You just have to find an Olympics book and just read that as fast as you can. It's good practice. <laughs> but... The book itself, I really enjoyed the fact that it is definitely meant for younger kids. It is meant for middle school, high school age kids. And as I'm reading it, I'm just thinking, oh, this is such a breath of fresh air just to have something that's simple. It explains it to the point. And it wasn't long. I got through this 
very quickly and I was I was very happy about that. And all of the information was very concise. It explained everything in depth and still gave people an idea of what was expected and what we can do in the future. So that, those are my initial thoughts. You know, for me, it was interesting because I haven't read a young adult nonfiction book in a long time. So it was getting used to this style of writing. What I thought was interesting about this book was that it didn't necessarily focus on just basketball. It focused on the whole element of the games. And this is, well, I, I, don't, I wouldn't even say the whole element. It focused on basketball and the racism at, around the Germans and the German leadership's plan to exterminate the Jews. And in a sense, I thought the two themes almost conflicted with each other for space. Like there wasn't enough to say about the basketball tournament that he had to include so much about the Jewish element or he couldn't tie enough of the basketball player's experience to that element. And I think part of it was because he got that interview with Al Miller. Remember how he told us in the first time we talked to him that he was really excited to talk to Al. But it, I don't think Al went to the basketball tournament. So that made it hard because it was an important interview to get into the book, but it didn't have a ton to do with basketball. And so I thought that the two themes ended up competing with each other a lot, almost to the detriment of learning about how the basketball tournament worked in Germany at the Olympics. We got a lot from how the teams were formed, and we even got some on the fact that basketball was at 1904 in St. Louis at those Olympics. That I, well, We can talk about that in a minute, but I know that's a controversy. And we got a lot of the journey to the games, but we didn't get a ton of the games there at the Olympics itself. At least to me, if it didn't feel like I knew enough about what really happened or I, I yeah. I thought it was interesting as a juxtaposition to boys in the boat, because we we've now read about the same Olympics in two different books, but basically about two American teams. And yes, Boys in the Boat is obviously an adult book. This was a young adult book, but it was so different in its approaches. You know, the, it felt like Marinus really wanted to talk about how the Olympics fit in to the larger Nazi story, whereas Boys in the Boat was more talking about a depression story that just happened to be at 1936. That could have been at 32 or, well, 40 didn't happen, but a later Olympics, whereas this was, it had to be at 36. There was no other way that he was going to tell this particular story that was so central to what you're talking about, the competing themes. It was almost like using basketball to tell the anti-Nazi story, which is what he really wanted to get across. The other thing that I thought was really interesting on that same idea was how he kept drawing the parallels between what was happening in Nazi Germany and what was happening in the United States with racism. I thought that was very interesting, a little unsettling, a little tough to swallow, but very interesting. And very interesting, especially because it's for a young adult audience. The idea that he wanted to get across was, this is how they did it back then. And America kind of fed off of that racism and still and thought it was fine. And I think Marinus is really using today's time to say, okay, this is starting to come back, but we as young people have to put our foot down and say, this is not okay. We cannot allow this to increase. I think that was the overall goal. I thought that the basketball at the Olympics was interesting. I thought even more was Team USA at the Olympics because there were actually two different teams and they would switch off playing games. That must have been the worst planning possible for any opponents, you know? <laughs> Especially because the first opponent, I believe, forfeited. So they had to, like, change everything again. I, I thought that was fascinating. What, what did you think about the the makeup of Team USA and how they decided on it. I thought it was fascinating that the makeup of Team USA was basically two corporate teams 
that were pushed together. So you talk about this element of amateurism that was so important, especially to Avery Brundage, who was head of the USOC at that time, or not the U.S. Olympic Committee, but he was head of the delegation for the Americans at that time. But yeah, just this idea that, oh, amateurism is the most important element of being an athlete at the Olympics, yet the basketball players were... They played for corporate teams, but they weren't paid to play basketball. They were played to do a job or quote unquote do a job at their respective companies. Well, I thought it was it's the same thing that, again, when we were talking about boys in the boat, how it wasn't an all-star or a national team. It was these pre-existing, in that case, college teams that competed to be the national team. So this was the same idea that you have these pre-existing groups rather than they pull individual athletes and make a national team. Though the only player on this basketball team, I love this little tidbit, that was not from either of those corporate teams was from University of Washington, the same as the, the rowing team. So I'm like, what were they doing in Washington at that point? What was going on? But yeah, it was the tournament with, to select the national team. He talked a lot about and how strange it was and how there were no black teams allowed and no black players. So he hit on that pretty hard. And yeah, I had the same impression as you, Jill, with the amateurism, that how can you be sponsored by a corporation but be an amateur? Well, you're not paid to play basketball. You know, it's again, so often in all these historical books that we read, amateurism was a joke from the beginning. As long as you had the patina of amateurism, Brundage was good with that. But the minute anybody actually made a dollar that was an athlete, it was like, oh, no, no, you're a professional. It's like, as long as the companies were making the money off this basketball team, that was fine. But goodness gracious, those kids who are actually doing the sporting don't give them a decent meal. But I did think it was interesting. I mean, we're talking about the the two themes being uh, racism and then the basketball story. But it is interesting. And I, I think part of the reason the racism was really emphasized was to teach younger people today that putting it into perspective of how much racism existed in the world and how how far we've come but yet there still is a lot of racism today and i i thought that was interesting i don't not having young adults around me i don't know how much they understand that but i think it was important that he added those details into the story to kind of hammer home look life was really bad for a whole lot of people If a teacher were to teach about this book in their classes, which is definitely something that would happen, a lot of teachers would look at this and say, okay, we can apply this because there's, it's so full of information. The kids would definitely get something out of it. I don't think kids would pick this up at the library and say, oh, I'm going to read this because it sounds cool. But if, oh, I disagree. You don't think so? You think so? I think if, I think it actually, they would, if if they want to read a basketball book, you know, if kids are really into basketball and they're going to read a basketball book, they'll get a good dose of basketball and then get this very large side helping of morality. So I think kids would pick this up actually because of that cover shot of a basketball team. Except it's a cover shot of all white players that are nondescript and and unidentifiable. Whereas if they were to pick up a basketball book, it would be, you know, it would have, LeBron James on the cover or something like that. Or, you know, it would be a a fiction book almost. That's how I would see it. I'm still somebody that likes to read young adult stuff uh, just because, like I've mentioned before, it's easier to digest than stuff that's made for adults and it's just all words and it's just blowing my brain. So I I would see kids kind of look at it and go, that's nice. But then they would go to something else probably, something more relevant to them. So I think it's incredibly important to put this in the hands of teachers. And I like that Andrew Marinus is going around right now to schools and teaching about this. And I would definitely show this to my seventh and eighth grade um, teacher that I work with and say, this might be something that 
might be very useful, I don't know, either in your language arts class or even in social studies. If you're covering this era, this might be a good way to say, okay, yes, we have to talk about Nazi Germany, but we don't have to use a standard textbook. Let's look at it with basketball. And then all of a sudden, all the boys are thinking, basketball? And then you've got them. So, you know, it, it sucks you in with the basketball, and then it makes you think with the the historical lessons. There was something in the history that he included that surprised me. I was surprised with how aware Americans of the time were of what was happening in Nazi Germany. I had always thought that it was very behind the scenes and that Americans at the time were not aware of how much anti-Semitism there was. And yet the way it's presented in this book, Americans were very aware. And either, you know, a lot of Jewish Americans made a lot of noise about it, or anti-Semitism was so accepted in the United States that it wasn't really paid attention to. It was like, what is the problem? So I thought that was, that taught me something from this book that I didn't understand, I think, about America in 1936. Or there was immigrants coming in from Europe saying, we escaped because of this, and we don't want this to happen here. I think that might have also been the case with it. Let's go to the, okay, we talked about the two teams. Uh, they both had two different styles. They went to the tournament. The Universal team won the tournament. The McPherson Kansas team got second, but they both went it's kind of like when they did the elections back when America was still a young country and the loser became vice president. It's like, this is even better, though, because, okay, you still get to play in the Olympics and go on the ship and experience the Olympic Village. I thought that was fascinating. The tournament and itself- And all the food on the boat. Yeah. Again, with, with the food on the boat. We know more about what people ate on the SS Manhattan than I know what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> Yes. If anybody was going to write something in their journals, it was going to be the food. I mean, what, that's what I would write about. What amazed me about that tournament is how much money they thought they would make from it and how that was going to fund everything and how little they ended up making and what trouble they were in just getting people over to to Europe for the for the games. You know, once again, everybody makes money except the people who actually need it. Right. The tournament itself in Germany, let's talk about the actual basketball and then we can get into the other things. The basketball court, would you even call it a court? Well, it, was, it was, wasn't it a tennis court, but it was, it was like fast. a clay court. Yeah, it was. Okay, I loved how the Nazis were so proud of it too. Temporary wooden backboards, a layer of loam, which is a mix of sand, silt, and clay. Could you imagine bouncing that about a ball on that? That supposedly made the surface impervious to rain. And then they had wooden planks around the playing surface, which meant that when it did rain and the clay sucked it up, yeah, they couldn't even play the championship game on that fancy court that they made. I love that. It's like, okay, Nazi Germany, you have no idea what you're talking about. You make terrible basketball courts. But what were your thoughts about how the tournament was, how they played outdoors? James Naismith, who got to go and attend... What do you think about all that? I love that they played outdoors. You know, I miss when the swimming used to be outdoors and the diving was outdoors. There's something about that that I think is is wonderfully connecting to how a lot of people actually participate in the sport. And I know around here, there's a lot of outdoor basketball courts and there are always kids on the outdoor basketball courts. And I love that element to it. I did not love the idea of these poor kids playing in ankle-deep mud. You know, I've never really played basketball, and I've certainly never played it on a clay court. I have played tennis many, many years ago on a clay court. And even when that's dry, that is tough footing. you got to know what you're doing. You have to slide. And, and trust me, I did not know what I was doing. So I can only imagine, you know, for the first time at the Olympics playing on this ridiculous ridiculously unbasketball surface. Yeah, it made you wonder if there are still planning notes from that Olympics and 
how they came the, to the decision to play on that kind of surface or if if people were playing on that kind of surface in different areas. I mean, the, the sport wasn't that old to begin with. And for a long time, you know, I I can't remember when it when it first started, it was a peach basket. And then somebody had to cut the bottom out of the peach basket at some point to make the basketball easier to play. But you have this sport that spread kind of magically throughout the world relatively quickly. And how did that translate into different countries and how their style of play of play developed? No, like still we have tennis on different surfaces. Yeah. And was that the case at the time that depending on where you were, were there grass basketball courts? You know, were there, I don't know, gravel basketball courts? That's really <laughs> that you never know. Problem. You never know. But d- were people doing all these different things because it became worldwide so quickly that people were kind of making up local rules and and local situations because that's what they had. That probably was happening, but the fact that a lot of people learned from the master himself, James Naismith, and then took that information back to their home countries. I think it was less so. That was something I really enjoyed hearing about was Naismith came up with these rules in 1891 and had the games and then proceeded to refine and then teach other people that were coming in and basically sitting at his footstep saying, teach me about this magic sport that they were obsessed with that wasn't baseball. I I was kind of surprised about that, but they were looking for something to do in the winter. You couldn't play baseball in the winter. So you had to figure out something. So, you know, I think any other countries that would go would think, okay, we're trying to avoid the winter time, the snow. So we'll build indoors. We'll do all these things just as James Naismith would say. Speaking of Naismith, I did not know he was here in 1936 at the tournament and that he was basically unknown when he got there. <laughs> Poor guy. He's like, fortunately, he's a humble enough guy that he didn't like yell out, like, do you know who I am? I made this sport. And, and he really did. I didn't did. know anything about James Naismith. I had, it was the answer to a trivia who invented basketball to me. I didn't know, I, like I said, I've never played basketball. I was never terribly interested in basketball. I know I'm gonna get hate for that. But what an amazing man. He was like the Mr. Rogers of basketball. He just seems like humble and intelligent and generous and just the kind of guy you would have wanted to have as a teacher. And so fascinating. So now I want to go and read more about him because I found him such an interesting element to the story. So with the game, we also hear about the people that were involved. One of them, Sammy Balter, ended up playing in the Olympics, even though people, and I'm sure he himself, was doubting whether he should go to Germany or not because he was of Jewish descent. And Andrew Marinus goes a lot into detail about Jews. There was a whole team in New York that was probably the best team in the United States that chose not to play in the qualifying tournament because they had Jews on their team and they just decided to boycott because of Nazi Germany. So hearing about his story, hearing about Al Miller, one of the spectators that was in Germany, what did you take away from those kind of firsthand accounts of Jews who were in Germany at the time? I found Sam Balter's story the best part of the book and getting into his head and the idea of this fight within himself. You know, he is Jewish. His family, his parents were immigrants. They had emigrated to escape anti-Semitism. And now he's achieving this dream of playing in the Olympics and representing, you know, his family's new country. And yet he's being pulled in both directions. You know, he's getting pressure from the American Jewish community not to go. And he's getting pressure from the American Jewish community to go and prove to Nazi Germany that he can be part of this. So the American Jewish community is splintered. His family was splintered. He, as a person, was so torn. And I find those kind of stories so interesting. How do you choose between who you are and what you love? And when who you are is two things, he's Jewish and a basketball player. How do you choose which of those things 
and which way those things play out. I would like a whole book on his brain, just how he made that decision. And what, because that must have been torturous for him. A lot of pressure. A lot yeah, of pressure. on both ways. I mean, and when we did Chariots of Fire, we had that same idea that it's neither one is the moral choice. And certainly we can look back and have a 2020 view on it. And I think just as many people in 2020 would be split about whether we should have boycotted or whether we not should have not boycotted in 36. Even yeah, with this view, even without being Jewish and without knowing what we know now, and even knowing what we know now, I think you would get people making different choices. And how do you say which one is the moral one? You can't. So I found him the, the most interesting character and the most interesting story. I mean, how do you reconcile that? I don't know what I would have done if I had been on that 3016. Would I have boycotted? I don't know. Given up my dream? That's, a, that's hard to say. Right. And, think... and even with so many Jews who won medals and prove Hitler's theories wrong, it doesn't seem like that had as much effect as you would want. Maybe it just stuck in Hitler's craw and he never talked about it and kept on with his plans. But the proving of worth was really interesting. And I think helpful maybe for us to say, hey, look, we, we told you Jews were good people, but I don't know. It, it is hard. Like what, what would have been a stronger message? The idea that Jesse Owens and uh, Sammy Balter win all these gold medals and, and disprove your point or boycotting your games and making them less successful. I appreciated that we got two sides of it with the, the one team from New York that chose to boycott and the, then Sammy Balter who chose to go. It was good to see both sides and to know that neither one was wrong and neither one was, was hugely right. And like you said, morally right. And that Marinus treated both as the right answer, that it's okay that you can make these choices. It, it, like I mentioned before, if you're teaching this in classes, you can talk about that moral ambiguity where, okay, we need to figure out what is right in the context of yourself. And maybe neither one is the wrong answer, but what's going to work best for, for you in your life? And seeing, seeing how they both played out and, and Balter won a gold medal and other Jews won gold medals, but it didn't always work out the best. And fortunately for, for Balter, it did. I, I don't know if you guys follow the Twitter accounts, the Auschwitz Museum. Uh, they, they do a big, they did a big celebration back in February or January about the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. It was 75 years ago this year. And you read about these Olympians that, yeah, they won a gold medal. They were Jewish, and they still died in concentration camps later. It didn't cause them any good. The SS didn't care. All they knew was that they were a Jew and that they were bad. And that's heartbreaking. And you don't want that to carry over nowadays, not necessarily to Jews, but to any other race, any other ethnicity, where you shouldn't have to earn a medal to prove a point. You should be appreciated for who you are. And and if this book can help to teach that, then I would highly recommend any teacher who teaches upper grades or high school pick this one up, give it to your kids, and, and emphasize that point strongly. I was yeah. just going to say, and yet another time, Avery Brundage is a jerk. Every single time he comes up, he shocks me with other ways to be a terrible person. And it just makes me mad. You're right. I mean, I, I don't think my anger will ever surpass that of Allison's. But every time it just, you know, it make, gives me knots. Because what could have been different if he hadn't been involved like this? You know, a couple of points. Talking about how you have to make a choice for yourself and how some people are going to choose one way and some people are going to choose another way. When you talk about trying to teach this in a school to young adults, it's a really good lesson to tell. And I think Marinus told mm. it well and how getting children to understand that everybody makes decisions for themselves. And sometimes it's not going to be the same decision you would make, but it's important that they have to make their own way. And even if it's a decision that doesn't work for you, 
learning how to accept their decision to do what they want and not shame them for for choosing that path. I mean, I think that was that he did a good job trying to exp- to bring that concept up so that teachers can talk about that with students. Okay, one last thing. There was one chapter that I despised. It was super short. It was the baseball chapter. I said, why are we talking about this sample sport in this book? Uh, they they have one chapter about how nobody understood what baseball was. And I'm going, we don't need this chapter. How did this chapter get in? But I don't even remember it. I remember yeah. that. And once you said it, Claire, now I remember. Because, yeah, they had, like, baseball demonstration there. But the Europeans didn't know how to play the game. They knew it was so popular so in America. Yeah, they were confused. And the games were long and boring. But again, that that went along with I wasn't quite sure what this book was. We were told that it's a book about the basketball tournament, but it's really it's like he brought in elements of the games that didn't relate to that for filler. But it also kind of shows us that demonstration sports were somehow confusing. So people really didn't understand it as much. And like you mentioned before, Uh, The 1904 Olympics did feature basketball as a demonstration sport and yet didn't get picked up officially until 1936. Well, Um, okay, so I heard from a listener about this because they said they probably wouldn't read the book because of the 1904 significance. They were boycotting this book. Boycotting this book because of the the fact that basketball is in the 1904 tournament and somewhere along the road, and this is something that I didn't have time to look into more, but along the road, uh, there was a tournament in 1904 at the St. Louis games. And we know that those games were considered a big debacle because they lasted over several months. They were in conjunction with the World's Fair exposition and there were events that people didn't even know were part of the Olympic games that they took place. So somewhere along the road of history, the basketball tournament at the games in St. Louis was deemed a demonstration sport. So there's arguments within the Olympic historian community that 1904 was the first time that basketball was a sport in on the Olympic program. There are argue are historians who argue that no, that was a demonstration sport and it was really first at 1936. So that in itself is an interesting thing. I know Marinus spent a few pages acknowledging the fact that there was a tournament in St. Louis, but uh, that's an interesting topic to kind of get into at some point and try to try to really understand the 1904 games first off. But understand, Ooh, that'd be fun, right? Understand this whole element of well, a just understand demonstration sports as as a big topic. And what makes them a demonstration, what makes them a full medal, and now that they don't exist, that that term demonstration sport doesn't exist anymore, just what that all means in Olympic history. So I did want to acknowledge that. Thank you for clearing that up. (laughs) But nice choice. I thought what I really liked about this book that it was well written. Yeah, and simple to understand. Yes. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thank you, Claire. Oh, you're very welcome. So what's on the docket for next time? Well, about a year ago, you had an author on, Roy Tamazawa, and you were promoting his book that just got released. That was back in 2019, I'm pretty sure. And I believe, like, the next day, I went on to Amazon and pre-ordered it and got my copy, and it's been on the shelf ever since. So what I'm hoping to do is I want to finally get this book read. It is called 1964, The Greatest Year in the History of Japan. I mean, they have a, a, a bigger subtitle, but... I oh, think come on. That go is... for the whole thing. You know how we All love right. the subtitle. Yeah. How the Tokyo Olympics symbolized Japan's miraculous rise from the ashes, which I think is a, is a pretty nice subtitle, I must say. Um, so I'm very excited to read about this. The 64 games were Tokyo's rise back into prominence. They were supposed to host in 1940, but the war got in the way and they canceled all Olympic competition. So this was their chance to to prove themselves. Their infrastructure was completely remodeled uh, in Tokyo and all over Japan. And 
in the past few months, I have been reading a lot about Japan and, and its history. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a different viewpoint on it from Tamizawa. And maybe even hopefully I hear that he's in Tokyo. So maybe I'll get to meet him in person. That would be fun. That would be fun. He's a great guy. So excellent. Well, thank you, Claire. As always, it was a great read. And we're excited about the next one. I'm very excited. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Claire. As mentioned, our next book is 1964 by our Team Olympic Fever member, Roy Tomizawa. When we talked with him last year for the uh, One Year to Go Tokyo. uh, The original One Year to Go. Right. He told us about his book. Now it is our next book club selection. Take a listen. All right, we're talking with Roy Tomizawa, who has written the book 1964, The Greatest Year in the History of Japan, which is the first English language book about the Tokyo 1964 Olympics. Roy, this is really exciting because sometimes it really is difficult to find books in your home language that are about an Olympics that didn't happen in the country of the language that you speak. Yeah, and I think... I think Japanese in particular is always a challenge, and that's probably why we don't see too much about Japanese history in English, except by scholars. So how did you get into being a fan of the Olympics in the first place? Well, my my father worked for NBC News, and way, way, way before ABC dominated, uh, NBC had the rights uh, to the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. So one of my father's first gigs uh, as a news producer was to go to Tokyo for the 64 games. And um, he's a second generation Japanese American uh, born and raised in San Francisco. And he was the youngest son of uh, four children to uh, parents that emigrated from Japan to America. But I don't think he spoke uh, Japanese very well, but I'm sure when they asked him if he spoke Japanese, he said yes, because he wanted probably to go to the Olympics, as I recall in the conversation we had in the past. And so uh, all this, you know, I grew up with all this sort of Tokyo 64 memorabilia around the house, you know, and loving sports in, in general. And then when uh, in the 19, uh, late 1970s, when NBC won the rights back to the Olympics, uh, I was really excited. I think I was the only kid in Queens, New York, to have a, a 1980 Makba Olympic t-shirt and uh, was uh, looking forward to the 1980 Olympics uh, in Moscow which, of course, as you know, never happened. NBC struck out in its uh, return to the Olympics, and then it went back to ABC. But then it returned back to NBC uh, with the 88 uh, Seoul Olympics. And, you know, I, I just threw, that was the opportunity for me to begin following the Olympics. And uh, 2013, Tokyo won host city rights. And then 2014, I came back to Tokyo, Japan for my third time. And uh, was very excited about the Tokyo Olympics coming to, to Japan, uh, or the Olympics coming to Japan. So I, I wanted to learn about 64. And so I went to the bookstore and was really surprised, really surprised that there was no book in English on, on the 64 Olympics. Not only that, I looked at history books and they would only give like a sentence or a paragraph to those games. So I, uh, I thought I'd, I'd write the book. Is there a lot written in Japanese? Yes, there, there is. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so uh, literate in Japanese, so I, it, it would be really difficult for me to go through uh, a chapter in a, in a book. But there, there is quite a lot written. Um, and, and as you can imagine, primarily from the Japanese perspective, primarily from the voices of volunteers and athletes and historians in Japan. I guess my book is different because it's primarily from the outside view. Um, people who've written about the Olympics, uh, non-Japanese who've written about the Olympics. And I've also interviewed over 70 Olympians from 16 different countries. Um, and so their, their view is, is predominant in, in this book. But, it, it, you know, I, of course, did look at uh, Japanese sources as well. I had hired researchers to, to review uh, well-known Japanese books to provide me the insight into that perspective as well. But not in English. There's not much in English. A few academic papers here and there. So what was the research and writing process like for you? Because it did take several years to get this book put together. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of imagined a plan in my head, and it, it, it's almost gone completely the plan. 
where I would basically just do a lot of research, uh, use my reporting skills, because I'm a former newspaper reporter, and basically start digging for people who, who knew about those times. And that's what uh, I did. I went to the library and started copying a whole bunch of stuff. And then I started picking up names of people who were prominent and seeing if they were still alive. And then I started cold calling or cold emailing, as it were. Uh, and as it turns out, a lot of people in their 70s and 80s who were in Tokyo at that time, especially if they were Olympians, are are very interested in talking about those times. And so it, it just snowballed after that. And so once I started gathering enough content, I, I said, okay, I need to start drafting my first draft through a blog. And that's when I started The Olympians, which is my blog, and just started writing. And before I knew it, I had written... Uh, original blog posts for 1, 000, over 1,000 days straight, which, as you can imagine, generates a lot of content and uh, all the way straight through the Pyeongchang Olympics. So I had so many anecdotes and so much insight into Japan, into the Olympics, into uh, the stories of 64, in addition to countless other Olympic Olympics. So it was just now a matter of consolidating the right stories with the right themes. Uh, and that's what I started doing at the beginning of 2014, right after the after I came back from Pyeongchang Olympics. I ended my streak of 1,000 straight days. I think it ended at around 1,050 or something like that. But uh, I'm still amazed myself that I did that. So I wrote the book, I redrafted, and then I went through the normal process that most writers do of write, rewriting, hiring an editor, rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. <laughs> <laughs> did you find it very hard to edit yourself because you said oh but i i fell in love with that interview i can't cut any of that out yeah i think there was some um, regret of dropping you know stories here and there of certain people uh, athletes who who really helped me and I, I wanted to figure out how to put them in the in in the narrative but the narrative was the number one objective and when you read the book, you'll sort of understand it's 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 stories. The sports stories are not as are important, but it's it's it has to be within the context of the historical uh, frame. So trying to tell the, the post-war economic history of Japan from 1945 to 1964, and the sto sports stories have to link up to those themes, whether it's about the post-war malaise of at the end of the war, which was a terrible time for Japan, uh, whether whether it's the the beginnings of the economic miracle in the uh, mid fifties and late six early sixties, um, the Cold War, the living in the in the thrills of the of the beginnings of the economic boom, and being able to use weave the sports stories into those themes was was paramount. So I have a little soft spot for Royals and the Olympics. And I remember vaguely stories of the emperor and his new bride in 64. Do I have that right? You're close. You're close. Okay. Because it's the current emperor who okay. uh, was a crown prince uh, at that time. And uh, they had their, I guess, uh, their their royal parades with uh, the wedding with the current emperor and his uh, wife at that time. Um, and uh, they met on a tennis court uh, in the late 50s. And their romance was very popular in the press. And uh, they had a, a wedding that was televised. Of course, everything in the 50s and 60s were magnified because of television. And so, yeah, that was, uh, I guess, Japan's big moment for celebrating their royalty. It was, um, you know, a, a tremendous contrast to their memories of the, the current emperor at that time, who was Hirohito, who was, uh, of course, uh, the leader of the nation during the World War II, and uh, whose uh, voice was heard at the very end of the war, saying that it's time to, to stop fighting. So, yes, the, at that time, the crown prince and the crown princess were extremely popular. And as you'll find out in the middle of the chapter three, that they were they were significant in in bringing the Paralympics to to Japan. There really had been only two Paralympics, and uh, when Japan won the bid for the Tokyo Olympics in '59, uh, beating out Detroit 
of all places. There was no planning for Paralympics. They weren't even called Paralympics, uh, as I understand it. And so I think they organized it all in about a year and a half or two years. And of course, uh, disabled people in Japan at that time were hidden people. You didn't see them, you didn't talk about them. And then to suddenly plan and organize an international tournament uh, around uh, people in wheelchairs was uh, an incredible incredible accomplishment, even greater perhaps than the Tokyo Olympics itself. One of the things I uh, also vaguely remember is that these were called the Happy Olympics. Yes. Why is that? They were, they were, it was a time, uh, I guess, of, well, it was the Cold War, right? So in 56 and 60, uh, there was uh, a lot of rhetoric between um, the East and the West. Uh, so that was one aspect to it. There was also a growing pay for stickers campaigns are the wrong words, but of course the war between Puma and Didas, the two brothers from Germany, was increasing uh, in the 60s. And um, certainly in 1968, you saw just bags of cash being handed over to athletes uh, fairly blatantly in exchange for wearing uh, either a Puma or Adidas uh, sneakers. Um, that was very, very low-key in, in 64, and uh, there, were, there were no major controversies. I mean, I think, I think the reason people call Happy Games is because they're comparing it to 68 and beyond. 68, controversial because of the Black Power protests. Um, the, uh, actually, the, it's, they're not quite sure how many people were killed, but there were, there were uh, several hundred people killed by the government uh, in, in the government protests. Uh, days before the beginning of the Mexico City Games. Then, of course, you had 72 in Munich, and we know what happened in Munich. 76 was a, a financial disaster for Canada, and then 80 was the boycott, and 84 was the boycott. So I think, in retrospect, for Olympians who've gone to many games, uh, 64 felt like an idyllic games where they were viewing the Japanese from a memory of the war times. And particularly if you were from America or England or Australia or Canada, you were brought up on propaganda about the Japanese as, as basically suicidal brutes. And so the Olympians that came here from those countries, uh, that was what they were told by their parents and their uncles and aunts. And they also knew that uh, Tokyo was firebombed and Hiroshima and Nagasaki were had uh, nuclear bombs dropped on them. So... Uh, they remember images of bombed-out Japan. So when they came to J Tokyo, they people were surprised. Tokyo was this clean, gleaming city, in some ways more modern than the cities they came from. And so more than all of that, of course, was just the friendly reception that they didn't expect. Um, the Japanese just, to them, went out of their way to be nice, to talk to them in English, to guide them around when they were lost, uh, to help them with whatever they needed. And so with expectations of you know, the Cold War, with understanding of Japan's past and who the Japanese were, they were also pleasantly surprised. So I think uh, all that all up added up. For them, it was the happy games. What's it been like in Japan? When, have, has the press or have historians been talking much about the legacies of 1964 and looking up to 2020? Well, I'm certainly getting a lot of uh, emails and phone calls from the press. Uh, and uh, so definitely the press are interested. They understand the power of context. I think uh, when we look at the work of the sponsors and the government, uh, on, on Tokyo 2020, their, their attention is making sure that uh, those games are fantastic. And uh, I think sponsors control a lot of, outside the media, the sponsors control so a lot of the, the way we look and think about the Olympics. And, and understandably so, their, their focus is on, on youth, the, uh, their focus is on the athletes that they support. I, I think there, there have been in Commercials here and there, references to Tokyo uh, 1964. There were a series of films uh, that reflected on Japan in the 50s and 60s that brought back a lot of nostalgic feelings uh, uh, about those times. But there are just so many things to focus on, I think, that uh, no one thing stands out. I think as we get closer into 2020, 
there will be more tension on on 64 because uh, I think people will definitely make those connections. What do you think writing because you're now you're based in Japan? Do you think being based in Japan versus being based in the U.S. changed how this book came out? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I well, I think I being in Japan, I I. I don't know if I can come with too many examples, but obviously being in Japan, I, I'm uh, closer to certain types of sources. So if I were in New York, I could do the same things I could do in, in Tokyo in terms of reaching out to athletes all over the world. Certainly for Americans, it would be easier time zone wise. But I think, for example, I needed to understand, so Seiko makes timepieces and they uh, became the official timekeeper of the 64 Olympics, uh, they fought for it and they got it. And uh, they were very innovative with their timepieces and, and the usage of uh, photography and uh, electronics to ensure accuracy of time. So, uh, I, you know, I went to the Seiko Museum and I walked around and then I started asking questions and I got to talk to some of the people there and was able to get greater insight into you know, what they did. Um, I couldn't do that, obviously, if I were in New York. I, all I needed to do here was just like, okay, on this Sunday, I'm going to go. So when I want to go see a venue, uh, you know, I, uh, I had a free Sunday. So I went to uh, Yume no Shima, which is uh, the area where they're going to have the archery venue. And so I just went. Um, I can go see what the progress on the national stadium is uh, whenever I want, because it's, it's very close by. So I think... Um, yeah, I think being in Japan, it's it's uh, you have a greater sense of look and feel. And I know you're you were saying your father was there. So what was he telling you when you were growing up? What stories were in your head before you started the book? Yeah, I think uh, he would give me the impression that Tokyo was you know highly dense, highly populated, uh, in some ways overcrowded. And as I you know did the research uh, at that time, Tokyo was I think the most populated city in the world. He has this great picture of him and the NBC News team sitting with uh, Rafer Johnson, who was a 60 gold medalist of the decathlon. And apparently he was, you know, one of the commentators for the NBC News team there. And it's, it's sort of a cheeky photo because they're all wearing uh, masks, uh, these gauze masks, you know, what you see people wear when, you know, there's a lot of dust and uh, a lot of things in the air. And, Although when you're in Japan, people wear those to basically prevent other people from catching their cold or to get, prevent themselves from uh, catching a cold. And that's, that's why people wear masks in Japan. Uh, and I thought uh, that's why they were wearing those masks in, in the picture. But apparently, you know, as my father told me, that the, there was just so much construction going on there. So it was, highly, it was just incredibly dusty. And Japan is very clean right now. Tokyo is incredibly massive and it's clean. It's, that's just an incredible thing. You don't see garbage anywhere. Uh, the air is, is good. But back in 1964, it was pretty nasty. The rivers and the canals stunk with garbage. Uh, the air was, you could rarely see anything beyond a few kilometers beyond Tokyo. There was just uh, construction and noise everywhere. Was, so those are some of the things that my I remember from my father. I think he also told me about the, the Japanese volleyball women's team, which were celebrated. Uh, they were a big, big part of those 1964 Tokyo Olympics. Um, and uh, as you'll find out, they, they ended up winning the gold medal. Uh, on Spoiler the alert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spoiler uh, alert. But, but, you know, as you'll find out, uh, if you didn't know, the coach uh, was, was famous for being sort of a, a, a sadistic kind of drill sergeant. And I remember my father talking about just the brutal practices that the women would go through. Uh, and as it turns out, other journalists at the time, as I looked into it, uh, had the same uh, feelings. Um, today, we would call it, definitely call it abuse. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I remember my father telling me that. Uh, but you know, I, I just regret he's passed away. He's passed away uh, long since. But uh, I, I guess I wasn't curious enough about that time. Thank you so much, Roy. We are looking forward to reading your book, and we will have our next book club discussion with about one year to go again. One year to go, part two. <laughs> hey, no, it's part me. Japanese. Oh, that's two. true. <laughs>
Well, I mean, like, okay, so seriously, though, it could be the official language French. Part de, there you go. Part two, for you have to have the English for... Right, and then the local language. That's right, part me. So look for Claire to come back in July and let us know what you think of the book as you read it. Let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. So there's not much going on in the world of Team Olympic Fever. Because there's not much going on in the world. (laughs) That's very, very true. So we decided to put up a post about everybody and their quarantine houses. Yes. So we took different members of Team Olympic Fever and we put them in six different houses. If you want to check out our different teams, they're on our Facebook page and our Instagram page. So it's on Twitter as well. And the best part was when members of the different houses started tweeting and messaging us back and to each other. So Sarah Gaskin, Deanna Price, and Don Harper and Nelson, I happened to all put in the same house when I was putting these quarantine houses together. And they had a fantastic conversation on Instagram. Deanna's bringing the desserts. Sarah's going to be teaching them all how to play handball. And apparently Dawn is going to be the training captain. So I'm a little frightened of that house. Oh, but it sounds so awesome. I know. But if Dawn is training me, it's going to be hard. She's going to make me jump over the hurdles. Okay. So Dawn will take off all of our self-isolation poundage. In This is true. See, that's that's what I would be banking on. But Deanna Price is bringing desserts. Probably healthy <gasps> And she can throw them right into my mouth. (laughs) Same with With Sarah Gascon. Like, between them, like, throwing stuff at you to catch. That would be cool. Get it in my belly. I will be... So Dawn could do her worst. I will still be packing the quarantine 15. It's fun. This has been a fun It's fun. So So take a look at the houses that we have up on social media and let us know which house you would like to spend your time in. And then Dr. Kristen Keim has been posting some really nice stuff on Twitter to help you get through stuff. And one of the things she posted was some themes that she has found helpful in working with her clients who are enduring the effects of COVID-19. So uh, some things that maybe if you're having a tough time, maybe some of these would help you as well. She mentioned daily journaling, meditation, daily movement, fun and healthy cooking. Or wait, no, actually it's fun slash healthy cooking so you could take that as either or and (laughs) Um, choose your preposition yep unplugging more naps which i believe you have been i am winning a gold medal in napping there you go gardening gratitude and positive self-talk hope and dreams let's move on to our tokyo 2020 update Different sports are coming up with their eligibility for the Tokyo 2020 Games in 2021. We talked last week about the football tournament, and this week we've got gymnastics. And FIG, which is the International Gymnastics Federation, will allow gymnasts who will be age-eligible in 2021 to qualify for Tokyo 2020. I'm not okay with this. I am not okay with this either. For a couple of reasons. And one of the things I read, which I believe was in a New York Times article, was that gymnasts who weren't age eligible already have a 2024 plan going on. Correct. So that puts a lot of pressure on them to try to qualify before their plan, which could lead to injury, which would be very bad. Yep. And because so many of the, when we talked about how they create a gymnastics team, Mm -hmm. you've got specialists. Mm Mm-hmm for certain apparatus and people are training with the idea of being apparatus specialists based on who they're competing against. So people made choices to say, I'm going to be a specialist or I'm going to be a generalist or I'm going to be a specialist in this event based on the fact that this other gymnast would not be their competition. Okay. So they've opened up the pool of gymnasts who are going to be eligible, but They've also reduced the number of gymnasts who are going to Tokyo. So right, which that that, that was already in place. That That's not something place, new. But now you have more people in a very tight, very very competitive yes. sport, and that I mean, you're just adding stress to a lot of young women or girls. Who don't you, girls? These are children, most of them, who already can't train and are probably very stressed out. And 
just adding this element. It's not not good. This is the exact opposite of what the football slash soccer federation did. Mm -hmm. They said if you qualified age-wise for 2020, you won't age out. We are keeping the pool static so that what would have been in 2020 will be in 21. So that eliminates uncertainty. The FIG just threw a whole additional level of uncertainty to these women because the men is really are not really affected because even though there is an age limit just because of the way like when we talk to Jake they they need to go through puberty they need to be big and strong so men male gymnasts tend to be older so i mean it may affect some of the smaller teams you know who don't have as deep a pool but for the women this is a huge additional level of uncertainty and there are very few competitions that are going to happen between now and Tokyo 2020. And who knows what competitions are going to be able to be conducted. So I think this is a huge mistake for the FIG. And I hope they reconsider. I hope there is a backlash against it because it's a mistake. Yeah, I would totally agree with you on that. The one good thing that they did say was that their code of points is going to stay the same. So they changed their code of points. Routine. Every four years. Yes, every four years. And that's how coaches develop routines for their gymnasts is based on what point levels everything has. So it normally would have changed in 2021 to be a 2021 to 2024 cycle, but they're keeping the cycle that's currently in place around for another year. And they won't even release the next code of points until January 2022, which I think is a good thing because it prevents people from trying to think ahead or trying to put things for 2022 in 2021. Yes. It prevents you from gaming the, the point system. And it prevents the judges from saying, oh, this is ahead of the curve as well. So they did one good thing, but the gymnasts are too young to begin with. So uh, the Olympic flame is now being held in an undisclosed location. We told you. A secure location. Inside the games calls it an undisclosed location. It was great. It's protected. Where nobody will tell you so you can't blow it out. So the members of the relay production team in Japan are now responsible for keeping it alight. Maybe they have a schedule. You know, like Sakura, you get this week. Toshi, you have next week. So it also means that the flame will be lit for over a year. That's a lot of pressure on that it's little a flame. a lot of pressure. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. But if I blow it by, by mistake, I've got my big lighter in its place. <laughs> oh, the organizing committee has also said, this has been reported also in Inside the Games, and I think I've also seen it in other places, that the organizing committee is purely working towards a rescheduled games for next year. And that's it. There's no plan B going on. Well, you know what? They told us that last time when they were just working towards... July 2020. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, what could we do? We can just shelter in place and wash our hands and not cough on anybody. But you know who's not keeping his mouth shut? Dick Pound! Going rogue. Oh, Dick Pound. Man, not even in a pandemic can this man stop. Can't stop, won't stop, Dick Pound. So he uh, told Inside the Games that... The IOC is going to have to plan for the pandemic affecting Beijing 2022, and the entire Olympiad is going to just lose revenue, which makes perfect sense. He's not wrong. I mean, maybe he shouldn't be saying it, but he's not wrong. I mean, how can it not not lose money? There are going to be people who don't go to Tokyo and don't go to Beijing, even if we've got a vaccine at that point. Right. And I think just so much money has to cover the cost of moving the current games and so many international federations are already feeling the pinch and i'm saying international federations but you're talking about ngbs too because usa rugby's declared bankruptcy already they're not having all those smaller tournaments that make up so much of their revenue and that's happening for everybody everybody's losing out on all the entry fees and club fees because all the clubs are shut down um you're not having training sessions that kids pay for. You're not having coaches certified. You're not having judges certified. And people pay for all those things. That's the revenue of the NGBs. 
it's really rough for all sports and there's just going to be a clamping down for a while financially hopefully they can all stay afloat i know that the ioc does provide revenue and a lot of funding does go to international federations but that's probably going to be a lot tighter now and even i can only eat so many oreos to give them their sponsorship money i mean i do my part but i gotta make my weight class You know, couch surfing does have its limits. (laughs) So we shall see. I mean, it's a really tough situation out there for everyone. It's going to be fascinating to study this. If I was a sports historian, you have so much to work with in going forward and understanding how the just the financial impact of all of this on sports in general. Well, when everything opens up back up, you know where I'm going? Where? I'm going to Tahiti and I'm getting ready for the surfing competition (laughs) and I'm just going to stay there so that they can't kick me out. Okay. Are you going to use some of your stimulus payments on coconut broth? Absolutely. And I'll start mixing drinks for T-Bock. I'll save an umbrella for him and I will be ready. Excellent. Alrighty, well, on that note, we will call it a show for today. Let us know what you thought of Games of Deception, and also let us know what quarantine house you would stay in. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're Olimfever on Twitter and Insta, and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Let's look at it with basketball! Do 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 do.